0: Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Hollywood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy.
1: Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly look at the world of Scottish politics. I'm Chris Marshall, Deputy Editor of Hollywood, and on this edition of the podcast, we'll bring you an interview with Professor James Curran. An environmentalist and former chairman of the James Hutton Institute, Curran has also worked as a government reviewer of reports from the UN's Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. This week, the IPCC gave its most dire warning yet on the climate crisis concluding that human activity is changing the planet in unprecedented and irreversible ways. Curran talks to Holyrood editor Mandy Rhodes about why we failed to heed the warnings about climate change and what we can now do to mitigate the worst effects. But first, I'm joined by a journalist, Andrew Learmonth and Louise Wilson to discuss the IPC report and what else has been happening this week. Andrew, the report was uh, fairly stark. What, what exactly did it say?
2: Yeah, it was very grim, Chris. It it basically said that climate change is not some abstract possibility, but it's here. We are living with it. We are living with climate change, and we, uh, humanity, are solely and entirely responsible. That The the rate of warning we've seen uh, hasn't been seen in the preceding 100,000 years. You know, it's it's happened since 1850. Uh, uh, We've seen these sort of these... These, these what it calls the hot extremes, the, the heat waves—they've become more frequent and more intense uh, since the 1950s. Um, you know, the, the, the heavy rain has also gone up as well. Um, you know, we, we've seen the pictures. I'm sure we have all seen the pictures from uh, uh, Greece, from from the island of uh, Evia. Um, really startling. You know, the forest fires there, and uh, just the, the the picture of people on the ferry leaving what looked like some sort of hellscape for for yeah. of a better word. Um, Uh, And basically, we only really have a decade to keep the rise in temperature capped at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, If we don't, then it looks like we're heading for two degrees, the consequences of which are are really unthinkable. Um, We had uh, a former president of the the Maldives, Mohammed Nasheed, basically saying that, you know, the world's lowest-lying countries, which is the Mohammed, would be... um, would be on the edge of extinction if we failed to sort of, you know, cap the rise in in temperatures to to 1.5 degrees. Um, And that that cap, that 1.5 degrees is almost inevitable now, uh, the report sort of very makes clear, you know, there's so much CO2 already in the atmosphere, um, you know, what things we might be able to do at the best case scenario is get up to 1.5 degrees and then possibly, then it'll go down to 1.4 degrees. But if we don't do that, then we could be at 4.4 degrees rise by 2080, which is, you know, pretty, pretty horrible.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned best case scenario, we've got the uh, COP26 climate change summit coming up in Glasgow in November. Are there, are there reasons to be optimistic ahead of that, that uh, the various government leaders attending will, will, will reach uh, an agreement at all?
2: I mean... Yes, you would hope so. You'd hope the starkness of the IPCC the IPCC report will will sort of you know will bring people together on this. Uh, uh, in that you know, we are facing almost extinction level events, um, uh, and the report is, is is quite optimistic in that uh, in that it says that the the path. Out of this is quite clear. It's never been clearer. You know, uh, you know the idea, the way we stop we cap temperature rises at one point five degrees is by the world hitting net zero emissions by uh, twenty fifty. So net zero. Uh, you know, just to, to explain what that means, uh, you know, uh, is effectively that there's a balance. There's a balance between um, what carbon is emitted into the atmosphere and the carbon removed from it. So you know, we, we get there by by. Uh, cutting back on emissions from home transport agriculture you know cows and all that sort of stuff in industry um uh, and you know uh, and then find other ways of you know of trying to absorb the uh, the, uh, the the carbon dioxide so it's it's you know it's it's i mean optimistic is possibly not the right word here but there is there is a way of 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 making things not so bad whether or not uh, world leaders grab the thistle here and do this you know who knows, we had, Boris Johnson was in Scotland last week and, you know, I, uh, he had a press conference and I asked him about COP26 and he said that um, it was a press conference that was overshadowed by other things, but but when we were talking <laughs> about COP26, you know, he said that, you know, that it, it's about UK government isn't going to this with an ambition that it can meet. You know, it's not going saying, right, we know we can do this, so let's make this our target. It's about going with the biggest ambition possible. So, you know, we, Hopefully, those aren't just words. Hopefully, that is what's going to happen, that we're going to go into cover of COP26 with with some pretty uh, um, big ambitions and pretty big targets and pretty big asks.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that that, uh, that that visit was was overshadowed. I mean, it was overshadowed by comments that he made on climate change when he said that um, Margaret Thatcher had kind of got the ball rolling by closing a lot of uh, coal mines in the 1980s. I mean, what was yeah. the... What was the reaction from from journalists on that uh, on that conference call when he said that? <laughs> I mean, it was um, yes, yeah, so it was about
2: fourteen of us, and and we'd been asking you know we don't I think we we're about sort of five minutes into the press conference, and 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 uh, we'd asked lots of different things about independence and and, and uh, you know Camborne and, and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, Campbell Oilfield. and uh, he'd managed to not say anything of any note at all, he uh, newsworthy. <laughs> it was it was a masterclass in just sort of saying nothing, um, you know. So- uh, and then he sort of, no one asked about Margaret Thatcher, so it was a question about, you know, when does he think the deadline for the transition from oil and gas would be? And then suddenly he goes, well, you know, look what we did, look what Margaret Thatcher did in the 80s. She, she was ahead of the game. She's brought down UK's reliance on coal, um, which, again, isn't strictly true because she closed the, the, the mines and then we just sort of imported cheap coal yeah. from the other side of the world, which is probably worse. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, yeah. And, and you can imagine the reaction from from the mining communities uh, uh, was you know huge um, because we know we, we know that the mining communities you know many of them are still devastated thirty years on from from when they were closed down.
1: Yeah, I think it's fair to say reaction across the board was was fairly huge. Um, mm-hmm. Louise, speaking of uh, fossil fuels, that the Scottish government is uh, facing growing pressure to oppose the the uh, oil field at Campbell that uh, Andrew mentions. But is it actually their decision to make?
3: Um, so no, not technically. Um, oil exploration licensing is reserved, which means it is a UK government decision. Um, that said, you know having the Scottish government oppose it would be pretty symbolic, um, especially oh. given that COP twenty six is being hosted in Glasgow. Um, To be honest, I was going to say I wasn't entirely sure why the First Minister isn't opposing it, given that she's not the one that actually has to make the decision, and it would just Mm -hmm. look really good. You know, we talk about optics before, like, it just, it, it seems to make sense. Having said that, in the last 10 minutes or so, there has been a bit of movement on that, hasn't there, Andrew?
2: Yes, yeah, so the uh, the first minister has now written to the prime minister asking him to to reassess oil and gas licences uh, where development has not yet started, and that would include the proposed uh, Campbell development uh, just uh, north of Shetland, isn't it? I think is it north of Shetland? Is that right? Yeah,
1: I, I think, think, think that's Shetland. right. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I mean Louise, uh, th- this this all comes against the background of uh, the SNP doing a potential deal with with the Greens that could see. Uh, to to Greens and government uh, as potential junior ministers. I mean, what's what's the latest on the talks there?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, part of me was thinking maybe the first minister wasn't coming forward and opposing Cambo until after a, a deal would had been. Had been done using that as a sort of bargaining chip, but maybe that's just me being a bit too skeptical. (laughs) Um, In terms of where we are with the deal, um, we don't know until it will formally be announced. Um, Talks are still ongoing. Um, The Guardian had a report this morning saying that a deal is meant to go before Cabinet for agreement on Tuesday. Um, but it will also be need to need to be signed off by Green members, as the Scottish Greens Constitution says any government deal would need to be signed off um, by by a vote by members. Um, so the ultimate deadline really isn't until the 31st of August, and that'll be when the programme for government gets delivered. Um, but we're likely to hear something before then, um, I imagine. Just just about the contents of it. Um, you mentioned there about having possible junior ministers. Um, so, the idea, I think, is that maybe Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater, who are the co leaders, are possibly taking on some ministerial portfolios. Now, not cabinet secretary mm-hmm. portfolios, so they're not um, sort of in charge of government departments, as it were, but it mm-hmm. would still be um, pretty big for, for the Greens. Um, and I think I'm right in saying it, they'd be the first um, Green Party in the UK to be in a government in some form.
1: Okay, uh, so it looks like uh, the climate politics is, is likely to move front and centre in Scotland at least.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and just looking at sort of some of the minister- ministerial positions that have been announced and trying to work out what those positions might be. Um, it was pointed out this morning that there's technically no energy minister. So that could be an option, especially Lorna Slater's got a background in renewables. Mm. Um uh, there is there is an energy cabinet secretary, but not a junior <coughs> minister. Um, there's also possibly a gap in the rural affairs portfolio, um, which might also make sense for the Greens. Um, Mary Goujon is the cabinet secretary. She's only got a, one junior minister, and um, that's Mary McAllen, and she is shared with the net zero minister as well.
1: Okay, some interesting times ahead. Thank you both, and now Mandy Rhodes speaks to James Curran.
0: James, I really thought about you this week when the IPCC report came out and, you know, a pretty stark warning, again, saying code red for humanity. And it made me think about the interview that you'd done for Hollywood magazine where you talked about 30 years ago, you were basically giving speeches to people about climate change that was des- that were designed to scare the hell out of them. Did you not scare them enough? <laughs>
4: um Probably not uh, look, looking back uh, now from this vantage point, uh, I certainly tried hard um, but they, they there's always criticism that you shouldn't frighten people because it it, it it kind of scares people too much and then they won't actually react they won't respond um, and I was very aware of that criticism but equally you know I, I think a good preparation is to get people a bit, Concerned, to say the least, maybe frightened, uh, and then present them with uh, solutions, ways out, ways ways to make life better. And I certainly tried to do that as well. But uh, boy, this latest IPCC report issued just the other day is, uh, as it says itself, uh, right at the front end, unequivocal in its. Uh, in its statement that climate change is man-made and that we have a closing window of opportunity uh, to, to, to seriously address it.
0: I mean, people like you, James, have known that for some time and as a UK government reviewer of previous IPCC reports, what makes this one any different? What's going to change? What, what do we need to do?
4: Well yeah it, it it it's an interesting question again looking back over that 30 years because i was i was first involved in in actually writing about climate change in 1990 um and from then on i did an awful lot of public speaking on on climate change um and i guess i mean i i was brought up in a very scientific family i i owe such a lot to my parents in the way I, I, I think and act and in, in my beliefs. Uh, and I do remain eternally optimistic that we will address climate change. It, it, we, we may address it just a little bit later than would be ideal, but we will. And we, and we have this 30-year window right now, uh, which is a tiny... Uh, uh, window of opportunity in the Im- immense kind of panoply of human history to, uh, to undertake what what is a pretty Herculean task and uh, to stand up like heroes and actually address climate change and, and make the world better for us all. And I do believe uh, in the rationality of society. Uh, sometimes that belief gets shaken, I guess. Um And we may want to get on to discuss it, but I don't think our economy is in the least bit rational. And as I say, we could discuss that later. But uh, I I think the, the, the world at large will move towards taking a rational decision. And why hasn't that happened quicker? Well, different people we know have different learning styles. My learning style, and as i said earlier, probably from my kind of background, is to understand the theory first. I I always like to to hear the underpinning evidence, the science, the knowledge, uh, the theory. Uh, But an awful lot of people like to learn by seeing and doing and experiencing. And I think the more and more that we see the horrors unfolding around the world of the impacts of climate change, and we see them also here at home in in scotland then people will begin to shift their views and they'll overcome what has been a considerable uh, period of undermining of the science quite frankly by vested interests um, and society in general civic society will come to a rational uh, conclusion and that will begin move us towards the tipping point both socially and financially And as a result of that, politically.
0: I want to come back to to so many things that you've said in there, particularly around your family and why science might be just a genetic thing in your family. But can I just, I mean, those of us that were around 30 years ago, and you and I were, and you were giving the speeches, a lot of people that were involved in the climate change movement, and I guess it wasn't really called that at that time, back then, were seen as cranks. Were seen as people just shouting at the sky. And it's almost the cultural shift has put that into reverse. The people that are shouting at the sky are now seen as the cranks and climate change um, scientists and believers and people that want to make a change are seen as the mainstream. That's been quite a major shift.
4: Oh, you're absolutely right about that. Um, uh, and <laughs> In some small, perverse way, I do miss being abused constantly as some sort of crank <laughs> and, and scaremonger and nerd and boffin. And yeah, I mean, there were a, a, I, I didn't, to be honest, receive some of the most abusive uh, kind of responses that, that many uh, climate scientists did in the past. But yeah, I got my fair share. And I kind of miss it now, to be honest. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's just one small symptom of a, a pretty substantial change in, in popular opinion and popular understanding. And, and all, all the opinion surveys are beginning to show that that, that, that the majority of people now want to see our, uh, our, our government systems making much deeper and much more rapid change.
0: And I guess, for me, it's interesting to see that it's been that younger generation that were not around thirty years ago when you were shouting at people about all of this or trying to scare the pants off them. It's those people that are young now, like Greta Thunberg, that look at the world and and probably wonder why on earth we allowed it to get to this position.
4: Oh yeah, I mean she she's amazing, isn't she? Uh, what what a great performer! But based on a very deep knowledge as well, I have huge respect for her ability uh, to be able to get messages across. And it, of course, it's great to see the younger generation take taking up the uh, the, the challenge like that. It's fantastic. But but equally, um, you know, it's my generation of really created this problem and we've created it well there's been a long history of of bad environmental behaviors but uh, my generation is perhaps particularly to blame because we didn't respond to it quick enough Uh, so you know we really must uh, rise to the challenge being presented by the younger generation and make sure that they have a safe and secure world to live in throughout their lifetimes and beyond
0: you you referred to your family back then and it would be good to just explore some of that about why science and the way you think is completely rooted in probably your father's experiences more than anything is that the case
4: yeah my my mother as well she she was herself a great scientist although in, in those days Women, sadly, very regrettably, didn't tend to uh, move into professions so readily. Uh, she kind of devoted herself to, to bringing up her family and doing quite a lot of voluntary work. But she she was a great scientist. My my father always said that uh, she had the equivalent of green fingers uh, in in science, and he reckoned she. He reckoned that she was a better scientist than him. So together, you know, I, I inherited something. I don't know whether it's genetic or just the environment I was brought up in, but just instinctively I think from a very young age I I I, I look at everything in a very scientific way. I, I I I ask questions, I want to see the underlying evidence, I want to see how the the structure of thinking fits around a, a particular problem. But then I was probably brought up in a, in a kind of golden age of science when science was going to answer all the problems of mankind. And I still deeply believe it has that potential, even though, you know, the, the results of scientific endeavor have sometimes been uh, badly, badly deployed and have been abused. But the, 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 the philosophy of the scientific approach is is absolutely invaluable to, to to our happy future.
0: Can you remember growing up, your parents with that kind of scientific head on, ever explicitly talking about the damage we might be doing to this plant, planet? I mean, some, and this obviously, because I've read interviews that you've done, would say that your father was perhaps involved in some of that destruction in terms of what he, his work during the war
4: yeah i mean my my father was a a a nuclear scientist in the very early days of uh of of nuclear science and he was involved in the second world war he was uh along with my mother sent out to the us to work on the manhattan project uh developing the, the the atomic bomb now he I mean, neither of them, like most people, didn't talk much about uh, their experiences during the war. I mean, before that, they'd worked on radar, uh, and my mother has had, had actually developed window, what's now called chaff, to confuse enemy radar. Uh, you've got to think about the situation they were in. It, it was a it, it was a race with uh, German uh, science and technology to develop these uh, these uh, defence and aggressive weapons. Uh, or, or you know, the Allies could certainly have lost uh, the Second World War. So you know, looking at, at it from that point of view, he personally never had any regrets of of what they'd done. And and he, after the war, was actually approached by uh, some some people who'd been uh, in prisoner of war camps in Japan, and said, look, you know, don't don't ever feel guilt about dropping the bomb because we know we would have died in those camps if it hadn't been for for the bomb and you know japan did have opportunities to capitulate earlier than they actually did which i think shows how how aggressive they were in in pursuing that war to some extremely nasty and, and bitter end. So, no, they in, in those days, as I say, it, it maybe was a kind of golden era for science. Maybe that, 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 that was uh, misplaced, that, that belief in science. Um, but uh, they, they, they never ha- had any doubts about the value of science in, in their day.
0: I guess it's just that um, realization that science can be used for good and bad. Uh,
4: absolutely, I mean, science is is about uh, developing the the knowledge and the evidence. It's a very creative pursuit as well. You need to you you, you need to hypothesize, and then the the difference between science and, and the arts and the humanities is that you then test that hypothesis. Um, so it's a very creative uh, uh, discipline. Um, But like everything in in human life, it it can be used for good or for evil. And uh, we're now at at that tipping point in addressing climate change when we can use the fantastic science that has been developed over the past few decades uh, definitely for good.
0: I mean, when you look at where we are right now, and I, I mean, I would call myself quite a positive person, but, you know, we have a terrible refugee crisis, an economic crisis, a pandemic, a global pandemic and a climate crisis. Is this what Armageddon looks like?
4: Uh, oh gosh, I I don't know what <laughs> I don't think I want to know what Armageddon looks like, and uh, I don't particularly want to imagine it either. Uh, all of those things you've you've run through, uh, yeah. I mean, they're big problems, they're big issues, aren't they? But we do know the answers. There's there's no question about that, um, and there's there's lessons to be learned as well um, along the way. Um, you, you mentioned there an economic crisis, and I think that that's quite interesting in relation to climate change itself, because as as I said earlier, I don't believe our economy is rational. You cannot have an unfettered free market economy that is just completely dependent on eternal growth. Uh, it, it just cannot exist, but again we know the answer. We know we should perhaps be developing a circular economy, which again mimics nature in that it, 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 it's a, an economy where there is no waste. Every kind of waste product is used as the input. Uh, resource for another business making use of that, where where we design our products so that they can be uh, not just recycled but actually upgraded, taken apart, the pieces reused. It's it's a fantastic kind of concept of what a new economy can mean, and it's an economy that is much more locally based. It does go against kind of globalization. Um, but it's an economy that can be rooted in locality. It can be rooted in communities. It's if you uh, want to cling on to the, 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 the concept of GDP, it's actually a very high GDP economy, and it has plenty of really good quality jobs. So in that one respect alone, the, the kind of economic crisis we're facing, we know what the answer is. Let, let's go on and deliver it, and it will be a better future. And if we do adopt uh, a a circular economy, then it drives down uh, climate change emissions. um, And it also makes us much more resilient in the face of the developing impacts of climate change because there seems no doubt at the moment that various uh, global supply chains are going to be disrupted by storms and and by impacts on agriculture worldwide. So if we can be a bit more self-reliant As well as resilient domestically then so much the better it you also mentioned the the covid emergency there yeah i mean there's been brilliant science uh creating um the vaccines Uh, and you know again let's be very optimistic the uptake has been quite phenomenal um I could tell a story there about the, the polio vaccine, but uh, we, we might come back to that. But the point I wanted to make oh, on no, the Oh, no, tell that, the... James. What, sorry. What... OK, I, I was reminded <clears throat> in the face of, uh, you know, the, the, the anti-vax movement there has been, which, uh, which is reprehensible, I think. Um, I was reminded that when I was very young, I must have been aged about four or five, something like that, we lived for a very brief time in the south of england my father had a job there uh, which is why my accent is probably like it is because i was born and i've spent nearly my entire life uh, in glasgow uh, and i know i don't sound like it um but there was a polio epidemic there and, and a friend of mine at the, the little school i attended actually died from polio and uh cl- clearly that that was some emergency as well uh, Because of the links my parents had to America, where they'd just approved the Salk vaccine for polio, he managed to get a a, a polio vaccine sent across. And he found, and I'm not going to say who it was, but he did find a a family GP friend who said, well, as long as I can vaccinate my children as well, I'll vaccinate uh, all of your children. So I can remember it to this day, and I was very young, going to this uh, doctor's house in the middle of the night and being vaccinated illegally uh, with the polio vaccine uh, brought across from, from the U.S. And that vaccination mark, because the old polio vaccine lives, it leaves a, a mark on your skin, is actually on my, almost on my shoulder blade. Because he wanted to put it there so it would be hidden and wouldn't be seen if I was wearing a T-shirt. So you know, again, there's a, a little family link there to, to to my absolute deep belief and faith in in what uh, science can do to give us a healthier a healthier life. So sorry for that slight diversion, but uh, you know, it's quite a moving little story uh, yeah, for, for me, and that. That polio epidemic was was devastating, and Jonas Salk, what a brilliant man! He uh, he he took no financial benefit for developing that vaccine, and I saw a figure just the other day: if he'd patented it, uh, he could have made something like seven billion dollars, I think. Uh, but he didn't. He gave it to the world for free. What 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 a man! I mean, that's that's quite. Moving, I think I'm feeling quite emotional about it right at this moment. Um, but anyway, on on the back of the COVID uh, 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 emergency, as you say, the, the the figures I saw the other day, figures I've read, is that um, it, the, the the COVID epidemic so far globally has cost about ten trillion dollars in lost GDP, and it's created about another twenty trillion dollars of borrowing by by governments so that's uh, 30 trillion dollars in the space of what about a year a year and a half um it's been estimated that to deliver net zero by 2050 to address climate change it might cost about 50 trillion dollars so it's about the same amount of money and that is required over the next 30 odd years not in one and a half years and That investment of $50 trillion would give a huge payback in new kind of economic development, new jobs, new industries, and so on. Um, So, you know, the lesson to me, and I'm sure to many others from the COVID emergency, is there's really nowhere to hide for our uh, governments worldwide now. We've seen what they can do in response to the pandemic, and great that they did it. They can do the same for the climate change emergency.
0: I found your polo story fascinating because I think at the end of the day, science and our understanding and our belief and how we follow it often comes down to individual stories. And I guess I could counter you with saying my mum was offered thalidomide as a, a, a drug to take for her morning sickness with my sister, my elder sister. But yeah. My mum just didn't fancy taking it, so thank God she didn't take it. But there were lessons, obviously, learned. I come from a family of pharmacists and nurses and doctors and midwives Um and that, that, that that's a positive story from her point of view. I also had my son in 97 as the whole MMR um, issue was exploding with Andrew Wakefield's research. And I have to say, as someone that would always be vaccinated against anything that I think is a public health emergency, I, I absolutely hesitated. Um, and luckily, he was able to get three single vaccines because we were living in London at the time and they were available. But I look back on that time and think I would I would have been seen as a vaccine sceptic, which um, frightens me now because I was reliant on what was being said by a scientist.
4: Yeah, Andy, I can completely understand that. And, and we had our son round about the time of the MMR scandal as well. Um, and, and it turns out to have been a scandal, doesn't it? Because that particular scientist yeah. Was, yeah. was in the pay of certain vested interests. And as, a, as an ex-environmental regulator, I know about vested interests. And uh, that, that was such a terrible and under, undermining story. Um, but, you know, we, we, we might get onto the issue of, of leadership and public leadership and so on. Uh, mistakes are made none of us is perfect we're all human um, i i thoroughly abhor vested interests that go out of their way to to distort uh, and to mislead but uh, you know mistakes can also be made and i think part of uh, good public leadership which you know the the model i love is authentic leadership is being very open and honest about your mistakes putting your hands up learning from it, and not just learning, but actually acting on that learning for the future.
0: And I guess that naturally takes us into the the things we can learn from this pandemic. I mean, yesterday I was interviewing Jason Leach, um, who's obviously been quite central to the way Scotland has responded or been led uh, around the pandemic. And he was he he's very open in saying we didn't we don't know all the answers. We were learning as we were going along. But but a big theme of that interview yesterday was about following the science. Do you think? That follow the science phraseology became more than just a, a a phrase to throw out there. Do you do you believe that the politicians were following the science?
4: Yeah, well, as, as far as I'm able to tell, uh, yes. Um, not not in some countries, perhaps, but as far as I'm able to tell, here uh, in the UK, generally there was a, a following of. The scientific advice, but but that's all it is. I mean, I, I before I retired, I I was chief executive of uh, Scottish Environment Protection Agency, uh, which is is the um, Scottish government advisor on environmental science, if you like, and we we took that role very seriously. But in that role, you are only offering advice, and I always fully respected that politicians have a, a much wider uh, kind of scope uh, uh they have many other balancing interests that they need to take into account and i always felt entirely comfortable as long as our scientific advice was listened to seriously listened to uh and, and taken on board um that was all you could ask for that the, there are other issues that that they needed to take account of as 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 politicians um yeah i'm sure jason would be saying the same thing he's such a brilliant communicator Um, but science always has a degree of uncertainty attached to it Uh, and as scientists you know i i think we're perfectly comfortable with that because we we know how that works Uh, and it's been the same uh, with climate change science uh, until this latest re- re- report which, which now uses the phrase unequivocal but a- around a lot of the detail even in that latest IPCC report there still is a lot of uncertainty in in, in certain kind of uh, planetary processes and how they're going to change under the impacts of climate change. Uh, I've always felt very comfortable with uncertainty in fact it makes me suspicious when Something appears too certain. Uh, but politicians find that hard to handle. Uh, they, they like certainty. Uh, and I think that's a pity. But that's a, a failing of our political system. I think it shows an immaturity in our political system. We need more honesty, that uh decisions are being made in, in, in the face of uncertainty um we, we we need therefore to make those decisions knowing that they might go wrong, knowing that we're maybe having to experiment to some extent and and if it turns out to be a decision that needs to be modified, then we'll be honest about that and and we'll admit the error and and we'll change the decision and and make a better decision so i i I would hope we can gradually move towards a a more mature kind of democratic system that allows for that in future Um, and it's going to be needed with climate change even if we are now absolutely certain that climate change is man-made we we will undoubtedly be making decisions in the future uh, on the basis of well this is our best knowledge at this particular time this is the best route we can take but we may have to we, we may have to change that in future.
0: I'm interested in what you said about Jason being a brilliant communicator because I think during a pandemic when people were trying and struggling to understand perhaps all the science, having good, clear communication, which is what we appear to have got from both the First Minister, certainly she gets lauded for that, and, um, and from Jason, that's been a huge benefit. And when people are struggling to comprehend difficult issues like this, which is what science is often for some people. Communication is the skill and I just wonder if in the past that that was a problem, that held back some of the debate around climate change, that scientists sometimes find it hard to get down to a level to communicate to ordinary people.
4: Yeah, um, I, I think you could well be right about that. It's, uh, it, it, it's changed. Uh, I mean, I still have a bit to do with um uh education and universities and so on um and i know that uh the training of, of uh, science graduates these days is is uh, to my mind much more sophisticated than it was in my time but certainly uh when, when i was studying and in, in my case physics and then meteorology uh we had no real training in in how to communicate how to put our findings, our evidence out into the public domain in a way that, that people would relate to, engage with and, and understand. That's definitely changed. Um, but it And it's absolutely vital to, to get that information across. And I think that is good kind of public Leadership, you're, you're you're quite right that the first minister and Jason Leach in particular, but but several others have have been on our kind of uh, TV and and radio night after night, and I've been so impressed by the way they've put across fairly complex messages in a, in a very very understandable and honest way, where. Also, the, the, they show real emotion. They're not afraid to hide emotion, and they're not afraid to admit when they're not certain about answers. Now, uh, I mentioned earlier about public leadership, and, and to me, those are some pretty key points in authentic leadership, as it's called, which I think is very important now and for the future, and again, particularly in relation to leading on climate change.
0: One of the things Jason and I discussed yesterday was, you know, two years ago, the idea that Scots would be as compliant as they have been around this health crisis. What could we take from that to deal with other big public health issues that we are wrestling with, like drug deaths and obesity? Um, maybe we can build on what we've learned. But I also wondered if we also should be applying that to climate change, that we may have thought in the past we couldn't change people's behaviour because, gosh, how it's too big. This is too big for an individual to think about. But look what we've all done in the last 18 months.
4: Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm not a politician. I've never wanted to be a politician. And I really don't envy them their job. Um, you, you can probably tell I'm going to be a bit critical of them now, uh, which is perhaps unfair because I've never been, uh, as I said, a politician. So I'm speaking just in the, as an observer here. But uh, I, I, that, that degree of leadership has been shown uh, in, in respect of the COVID emergency. Uh, And as I said earlier, we we now know what the financial cost is and compared that to the cost of addressing climate change and reaching net zero by 2050. So the cost element, really, we've seen that kind of money can be mobilised, so it it needs to be mobilised again now uh, with respect to climate change, and there will be a huge payback from doing that, and it will actually uh, provide us with Better lifestyles and, and, and pleasanter uh, 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 surroundings in future if we address climate change in the right way. So the, the the leadership now is really needed in the face of let's face it, vested interests. There's been a long history of the undermining of climate change as a as a, as a threat, as there has been in the past with other threats like uh lead in petrol is a good one um smoking asbestos air pollution there have been various vested interests of have worked really hard and thrown large sums of money at trying to undermine the science and and uh swing the political opinion behind a, a, a a contradictory point of view uh, to the immense damage of civic society in my belief and it's taken many many years to address those issues uh, which have now uh, it's now been done and we we all recognize that the damage and the danger associated with uh, uh, the, the, those things like asbestos and, and, and smoking Um, The same is true now of uh, climate change. So our politicians do need to stand up. They need to recognize that they can mobilize very large sums of money. They do need to stand up to vested interests. um, And they need to show genuine leadership. And it's my belief, and it has been exemplified very well, I think, in the COVID crisis, that with determined, honest, decent leadership, with all the qualifications that we've been through before, and I keep using this term, authentic leadership, uh, which is, is is about having a, a sense of personal trust in one's own motives and values and ethics as a political leader, uh, but also being self-questioning and reflective about the decisions you, you have to make. Um, but being driven by a, a, a deep kind of ethical sense of purpose. Um, another element of authentic leadership is, is resolving issues in a, in a non-manipulative way, so being completely out in the open and looking for evidence, seeking evidence, seeking a wide range of opinions. Then I think that kind of authentic leadership uh, is necessary the future. And I, I think we, we can do that here in Scotland for, for, for certain. Let's get on and do it.
0: The obvious question is, do you think our First Minister has authentic leadership?
4: I, I Again, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm an observer, uh, uh, along with most of the rest of us. I, I think she certainly shows all those signs to me. I've seen her on TV being uh, driven by uh, her, her own instincts, her own motives, and her, her own values and ethics. Uh, I see her admitting to errors. I see her admitting to uncertainty, and I see her being quite open and honest that we're, we're doing the best we can, and, and these are the decisions we're going to make for these reasons, uh, but we, we will uh, learn and change if, if uh, it looks like we've, we've made mistakes. Those are some pretty key elements of uh, authentic leadership, um, and I'm not being political about any of that. I'm, I'm just j- just expressing my sense of, of uh, her as a as a first minister and as a leader.
0: But of course, the political leader that will be at the top table at COP26 in Glasgow in November is actually the Prime Minister. Would you attach that lately? <laughs> label of authentic leadership to him well
4: now you're putting me on the spot aren't you but uh, <laughs> uh, this whole conversation has been about science and I would need to see the evidence and quite honestly <laughs> I see no evidence of that no
0: oh well you were on the spot and you answered Um <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> A very live example, I guess, of all the things you were saying there about um, political leadership, climate change, decisions that need to be made, is the decision around the Cambo field off Shetland. Um, So for me, it felt very ironic, I'm sure it did to you, that the IPCC report comes out in the same week that people are discussing whether or not there should be further exploration around fossil fuel.
4: Yeah. Yeah uh and i think the ipcc report and other documents so i'll mention just in a moment give us some guidance (laughs) on this which i'm sure is a difficult decision for politicians uh, because they will be uh, heavily put upon by various vested interests they'll be worried about an uncertain future um so again i am genuinely feeling sympathy for uh, are political leaders, but they must be guided by their own values and and, and ethics, um, and they must be, as I said earlier, non-manipulative in their decision-making, so let's see it all out in the open. But uh, the IPCC report, as I've said a couple of times now, is unequivocal uh, in its conclusion that climate change is man-made, and on the back of that, the the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres he he said, "This IPCC report quote uh, I think I'm getting this right must sound a death knell for fossil fuels." Um, quite a strong <laughs> uh, a, a quotation there from him, uh, and and coincidentally the um, International Energy uh, Agency. Uh, some months before the release of the IPCC report uh, stated that uh, for a global net zero pathway, uh, reaching net zero uh, globally in 2050, uh, there should be no new oil and gas fields approved for development. So taking that as guidance, uh, these guys have done a fantastic uh, sifting of the evidence, <laughs> They've, uh, both of them, uh, the IPCC, the UN, and the IEA have uh, gone to great lengths to, 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 to validate their, their findings summed up in those two quotes. Um, the, you know, we need to take that evidence very, very seriously, and, 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 and the hit list needs to be coal. Let's, let, let's get rid of coal first. Next comes oil. After that comes gas. So, you know, my conclusion is, no, we cannot allow the Cambo oil field to go ahead.
0: What's your view on nuclear energy, James?
4: Yeah. Um, years ago, I, I wasn't particularly opposed to it. Um Because it's very low carbon. It's not zero carbon, but it's very low carbon. And when you're developing large amounts of intermittent uh, renewables, uh, when the sun shines, when the wind blows, you can generate large amounts of renewables. Um, There are potentially gaps in that uh, delivery, that, that generation. Um, and you need to fill those gaps somehow. And in order to stabilize the, the national grid, to keep its its frequency 50 hertz, 50 cycles per second stable, you, you need a kind of bedrock of, of solid, dependable generation. So some years ago, I used to think, yeah, we could probably um, tolerate, might be the appropriate phrase, a certain amount of nuclear generation. I've moved away from that now and I, I i wouldn't advocate nuclear generation at all um it, it, you know the, the the technology is pretty safe really there, there are a lot of nuclear generators around the world there have been some horrific accidents but that's the same for almost any in, industrial um uh, endeavor we pursue but it, it's the, the 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 storing and disposal of the waste seems to be an insurmountable problem. We have no solution even on the horizon for that. So it, it, by, by that measure alone, it is unsustainable. So you might ask, well, what's the alternative? The alternative is we're rapidly developing means of storing uh, renewably generated electricity. Batteries, huge batteries are becoming more and more uh, technically feasible. Uh, more and more common and cheaper and cheaper and there's a lot of research going into new uh, types of battery Uh, we have huge um, electricity interconnectors now across Europe so if the sun isn't out or the wind isn't blowing here in Scotland we can connect uh, to England and across the North Sea to Scandinavia and across the channel into mainland Europe so we can swap electricity around. And uh, as evidenced in Orkney just very recently, we're beginning rapidly to develop um, tidal power generation, which is highly, highly dependable. You can predict it decades ahead it, it follows the tidal cycle so again that that can provide us with a kind of uh, underpinning bedrock power generation that stabilizes the grid and and can fill in the gaps in more intermittent renewable power generation so at this moment i would think no we don't need nuclear generation we should be piling money into all these other alternatives and and developing all of them as rapidly as we possibly can. I'm
0: I'm conscious as well as we speak that we we are talking about big concepts and people often feel overwhelmed by all of this and the idea that what can I do that's going to actually make a change? And I was interested in the work you did for uh, the Isle of Man on their climate change action plan where... And the idea that you take a community and basically try to get the whole community involved in in making that change. I mean, that's something surely that Scotland, again, building, I guess, on what we've done during the pandemic, could get behind. Yeah, and I,
4: I, I think Scotland's been trying pretty hard at that. You can you can always do more. And certainly, I mean, I was only advising the Isle of Man government uh, uh, and I wrote a Uh, a a report for them uh kind of providing options to to reach net zero in 2050 which was their uh political commitment which came from their chief minister as they call it um and certainly in that report i i recommended very, very strongly that the, the whole community needs to be part of that uh, journey towards net zero. And I, I think the Isle of Man has been working pretty hard at that. And uh, we, we'll see how that develops in, in the future. So it, it's important. You know, I, again, I reflect back on something that my wife and I did. We both gave up our professional careers for a, a while. And we actually opened up uh, an environmental store and cafe right in the city center of Glasgow. We ran it for a couple of years and then sold it on. But at at the time, it was a completely new kind of business model. Looking back at it now, you know, I I loved what we did. uh, And it was such a fantastic experience, but boy was it exhausting still gives me the shakes sometimes the, the amount of work we put in but as far as we could tell it, it was the first in europe to uh, to have a little shop okay, you know it we, we were just financing it ourselves so it wasn't huge but to try and explain what it was i in a very kind of offhand way used to call it the john lewis of the environment because we did genuinely try and stock everything that John Lewis did, which was actually just round the corner. We were right in the heart of the city center. So we tried to stock everything for, for, for the household, uh, but we would choose the one item that was best for the environment. Like uh, we even stocked a, a tumble dryer, which might be anathema to, to some environmentalists. But you know, let's face it, if, if you're living in a Glasgow tenement and, and have a baby and you need to wash nappies and so on, What are you going to do? You have to have a tumble dryer. Um, So we we sourced the world's most efficient tumble dryer, which also happened happily to be uh, manufactured in Yorkshire. So, you know, a really, really top notch, sustainable product. So that was the tumble dryer we we uh, stocked in the shop. we also had a a, a 100% organic cafe attached to it. And and we tried to tell a story in the cafe, um, a, a system based actually on the Nike shop in New York, which I remember visiting years ago. And its kind of design features and so on were fabulous because about every quarter of an hour down a completely white atrium in that store in the heart of New York, a huge screen would descend, the lights would dim, some quite kind of uh, captivating music would come on, and then then, uh, projected onto the screen would be pictures of athletes and so on doing amazing things, but of course wearing Nike products. So we, we in a very tidy way, tried to do the same in in our cafe, projecting on the wall pictures of uh, environmental catastrophe, but also pictures of how fantastic our global environment is, uh, and little embedded messages about what each one of us uh, can actually do about the environment. Um, and the, the, the most moving thing was that the customers we used to get in there were, were so enthusiastic. About the kind of stuff that we stocked, and, and what what they could individually do to to improve their in- environmental performance at, at the personal level, and it was truly inspiring. Having worked all my life, and then subsequently in the public sector in the environmental movement it was just wonderful being exposed to these people who who gave you such a sense of of commitment and enthusiasm and dedication to improving the environment around us and, and making for a better world in future um, but the, you, the one interesting uh, aspect is that uh, wwf uh whom i used to do a bit for in, in, in a voluntary sense, um, you, you can do the, use their online tool to estimate your environmental impact, your environmental footprint, and so on, which is an interesting thing to do in itself. But they always reckon that uh, to, to, to get to true sustainability, um, half of that change we can deliver through our own personal behaviors and choices the other half absolutely needs government uh, to make policy and fiscal and economic changes. So, you know, it's a shared responsibility between each and every one of us, but government shown the appropriate leadership as well. So, you know, there's a strong message there that we're all in this together.
0: Well, the key message from government, UK government seemed to be about your dishwasher last week.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, perhaps the
0: best <laughs> said <of> about right? <laughs> And and just finally, James, I mean, because you always come across as such an optimist, you know, having worked in what could really grind you down. Really, um, are you optimistic about what might happen in Glasgow in November with COP twenty six? Are you optimistic that we we will come through this? That we the planet will be saved?
4: Oh, absolutely!
0: Yeah. <laughs> Ever the
4: optimist. Some might say naive optimist, but uh, no, I, I, I I'll, ne- I'll never change my belief, absolute belief. But we, we will rise to the challenge. Um, as I said, I think right near the beginning, we, we may be a little late. We may just be diving through the door as it's closing, but, but we will definitely do it i mean i i i had a long career in environmental regulation which i loved by the way um as as i said i'm used to challenging vested interests and occasionally you lose a battle but there's absolutely no doubt (laughs) and you know regulation is important the great thing about regulation uh which various governments have had uh you know um doubts about, to put it mildly, uh, and there's been uh, um, deregulatory uh, efforts over the years. The great thing about regulation is you can bring it in quickly and it drives change very, very rapidly. And actually, business doesn't mind regulation because it creates a level playing field and it creates certainty for investment in new technologies and, and new Products and new new procedures and techniques. Uh, it's been proven over over again that environmental regulation drives innovation and creativity. So I'm am a great believer in in regulation, uh, which which is a another facet of strong leadership. So you know I think coming out of COP26 in Glasgow will be a reaffirmation of that kind of regulatory approach. In this case, it needs to be absolutely global, absolutely comprehensive, uh, so that we, we all know that together, all those 195 nations together are tackling this problem, helping each other through it, and we will do it.
0: As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends, because everybody has an interest in politics.